few weeks ago, I got a phone call. Voice on the other end said, Mike, don't know if you remember me or not, but this is Tom Wilmink. Oh, hey, Tom, sure, I remember you. We began to talk, and he gave me the gracious invitation to come back to Fifth Avenue, to come back to Huntington, to come home. And about 10 minutes into the conversation, I realized I wasn't talking to the Tom Wilmick I knew at all. I was talking to his son. <laughs> That's what happens when you've been gone for 34 years. And none of you look like you used to either. Uh, it, <laughs> I think I created a little bit of anxiety, perhaps for the staff and certainly for Dr. Campbell. He said, Mike, we like to put a a verse from the text on the front of the order of service each week. And I'm not sure you want to put, woe to you, you hypocrites. Um, (laughs) And I began to think, what kind of a man comes back to his home church and chooses that text um, after all uh, all these years? Just bear with me on that one and we'll try to redeem it. Uh, Thank you for the invitation. Uh, Huntington is home. And uh, Fifth Avenue Baptist Church is home. It is a people and a place uh, that nurtured me in ways that I'm not sure I fully appreciated 35 years ago. But walking these halls this morning, uh, memories come rushing back of the day that uh, David Carrico invited me to be a part of the Bethel Bible series, uh, of teaching a group of teenage boys of which Tim Moore was a part, and he and I reminisce about that from time to time, of Wanda Rose inviting Bobby and me to be uh, youth choir chaperones of Earl Heiner invited me to come be a part of a men's prayer group that met in the chapel on Monday mornings and kneeling at 6.30 in the morning before we went to work asking God to guide us in the coming week of the weekend that Tony Campolo came And I was one of the young guys then and being challenged by his words in ways that I had never been challenged. And then being invited to be the youth representative on the pastor search committee. I was 31 years old. That was on the search committee that called RF and Faith Smith and uh, continued to have a relationship with their family more with their daughters, uh, Rachel and Becky, and when Becky's daughter, Brittany, uh, got married, she called and asked if I would come and do her wedding and stand in for RF. And it was one of the great honors of my life. There are deep connections here. As uh, Hubert said, uh, 46 years ago, I stood right there and uh, made those wild promises to Bobby and she to me. Uh, Don't remember much about that. I do remember standing outside that door with my dad, and he said, are you sure you want to go through with it? (laughs) 
my ordination. And Dr. Woody Clark coming back and taking that bony finger of his and pointing at me sitting right there. And Lowell Fairley, few of you will remember him, but he came for a weekend from the First Baptist Church of Scottsdale, Arizona and preached a sermon that changed my life. And finally, while serving on that pastor search committee, uh, I responded to what I perceived to be God's call in my life to, to go to seminary. And as I was preparing to leave the, the committee, you'd had two wonderful interims in Dr. Peter Ray Jones and Dr. Buddy Sheridan. And I told Don Tarter and the rest of the committee, I said, now, y'all, i only got one piece of advice for you. When your new pastor comes, you need to get these guys out of the way, and you need to bring in a couple of duds before your new pastor comes. You don't want him to be compared to Sheridan and Jones. And so they did. They invited me to come back that <laughs> the Sunday before RF's first sermon. And now, my good friend Guy Sales is coming to be your interim pastor for the next few months. And I suspect somewhere in a conversation, somebody said, well, we need to bring in another dud. And <laughs> I guess it's me again. <laughs> I have uh, I've loved this place and its people. And while I don't know Alan all that well, I have friends that know him. Um, Alan Ken Massey says to say hello. Uh, they used to ride back and forth to class together in Texas. Some years ago at the church where I served as pastor for 25 years, First Baptist Church in Wilmington, we needed to replace the pew cushions. The old ones were worn and didn't provide much comfort at all. I went to an 80-year-old member of the church who'd been there his whole life, Dr. Burt Williams, and I said, Burt, when did they put those pew cushions in? He said, Mike, they've always been here. They were here when I was a little boy. He said, I thought they were old then. <laughs> you can imagine what they looked like. They were about this thick, red crushed velvet, but no longer that thick, but like this. Truth be told, they should have been replaced many years before. It was time for new pew cushions. The appropriate and responsible people met, made a decision, got approval for funding, and ordered the new pew cushions. And everybody was so pleased when they were installed. They were comfortable. They were nice. Except in, in our church in Wilmington, we, we have deacons. And at a subsequent deacons meeting, one of the deacons at the end of the meeting, raised his hand and said, who had the authority on those pew cushions to change the fabric? <laughs> what? Uh, he said, we've always had red crushed velvet, and they, they got the new pew cushions, but it's a different kind of fabric on it. And for the next hour and 20 minutes, those deacons debated who had the authority to choose a different fabric and make such a radical change in the life of First Baptist Church. 
So for that hour and 20 minutes, they developed a specified process and the locus of authority when it came to picking new pew cushions. Although it would probably be another 80 years before they had to do it, they now had a policy in place. As is often the case, situations like that, after the lengthy discussion, a consensus was reached and the matter was dispatched. Chairman called, turned to me, and said, Mike, do we have anybody in the hospital? And I said, yes. He said, give us a report and lead us in prayer. And I stood and gave the name of a lady who was in the hospital uh, with pancreatic cancer. And then I led us in a prayer. And as I finished the prayer, I didn't linger. I turned to get out of there as fast as I could to go home. It just didn't feel right. I'm driving home and I thought, we spent 80 minutes debating pew cushion fabric selection processes and 90 seconds praying for a woman who would die later that week. I'm an emotional guy and my emotions got the best of me. And I began to cry thinking what we had done. So much so that I had to pull off onto a side street to get myself together before I made it home. That was but one of a series of events in my life and ministry that caused my life and ministry to change. You see, it wasn't that the pew cushions weren't important. On one level, it was. But something else was also true. The energy and the anguish of that conversation was totally out of proportion to its importance, especially when it was contrasted so vividly next to an offered prayer for a dying woman. Why do we do that? Why do we allow important things to take precedence over really important things? My friend and colleague, Jane Davis, helped me with that the next day. She said, well, Mike, for one thing, we can control pew cushions. We can't control pancreatic cancer. We can control pew cushions, but we can't control cancer. That must have been the case for the scribes and the Pharisees to whom Jesus spoke those scathing words of condemnation. You see, they understood the tithe so much so that they tithed the, the very spices that they grew. Even a tenth of that could be given to the Lord. And there was nothing wrong with that. And it was the correct thing to, to do. And yet Jesus called them hypocrites. Because they had not attended to weightier matters. And what were the things that Jesus told them they should have been paying attention to? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. You see, those things are harder, and they're harder to measure, aren't they? As a family who tithes our income, it is one of the easiest things we do. We can measure it. We know what it is. It comes off the top. It's not open for debate. That's what we do. And we can control that. But seeking justice for all persons and granting mercy 
to those who may have heard us. We're living in faith so that others might see Jesus in us. Now all of that is a whole lot tougher and much more difficult to measure. And the main reason for that is that none of those things are ever fully and finally accomplished. We can pursue justice till the day we die and never see it fully realized. For one thing, it involves other people and it's often messy and costly and hard. We never arrive at the goal because injustice and condemnation and pride will fight all of our attempts to drive them out of our souls. And because it's hard work, we fall back on the things that we can control. Fixing the church, serving on a committee, doing that stuff. And we fall back on things that we can accomplish and measure and get credit for. And we do this, says R.C. Sproul, to obscure the deeper issues of righteousness. And that's exactly what Jesus condemned the scribes and Pharisees for doing. Woe to you, he cried out, you strain at a gnat and swallow a camel. And of course those words are not meant to be taken literally. Gnats were a huge problem in that day and time and they would cover up to keep them out. But they didn't literally swallow camels. He was making a point. They took care of the little details, but neglected altogether the really important stuff. And this text ought to cause each one of us to ask the question, what really is important to God in my life? What have I neglected to do that God has given me to do? Just like the coffee cup. What was neglected? In one city block in downtown Wilmington, there are two structures. One is the First Baptist Church, and the other is the New Hanover County Jail. We fill up the whole block. And uh, for years, uh, we had sought to establish a ministry at the jail with... Uh, with the residents there, and uh, each effort failed miserably. You see, jail ministry is not easy work, and it doesn't always bear the fruit that we would hope for. One Monday morning, I get a call from a young woman in our church. Uh, seemed to be uh, a little exercised about something and needed to come see me right away. And I said, well, come ahead. And in 30 minutes, she walked in, uh, manicured nails, not a hair out of place, um, dressed to the nines, as they say. Um, this is a 35-year-old woman with two small children and a very successful husband who didn't attend church. And she said, Mike, every Sunday morning I park my car on Princess Street and walk through the back alley, and I look up at the windows of the jail. And in the jail, the windows were just a, along the top of each floor. And she says, sometimes you can see their hands gripping the, the bars in the jail. And I think we need to have a ministry at the jail. It's on the same city block with us, and I think we need to do that. I told her I, I couldn't agree more. I said they need our love, care, and concern, but, you know, we've tried, and uh, we just haven't been able to do it. 
She said, Mike, why do you think I'm here? I want to start a ministry at the jail. Now, my daughter says, you know, Daddy, your, your body language and facial expressions give you away all the time. And apparently they did in that case. She sort of looked at me, and then she stood up, took a step or two towards me, and she said, you don't think I can do this, do you? And I was choosing my words carefully, and I said, you know, I, I don't know, but you know, you're not the first person I would have chosen to launch a jail ministry. And she took two more steps and took her finger and pointed at me. And she said, Mike Queen, I'm a convicted felon. I spent three years in the state penitentiary in Raleigh, and I know a whole lot more about what goes on in that building than you will ever know. Now, do I have your permission or not? Well, yes, you know. I... <laughs> Let me get out of the way. <laughs> she scared me to death. <laughs> that was more than 15 years ago, and she's moved to another town and moved on. But the amazing thing is they built a new jail, the church bought the old jail, but that's another story for another time. Um, they moved that jail 11 miles away, and even today, 15 years later, there are 88 people in the church who are involved in jail ministry. Go four times a week, three men's Bible studies, one women's Bible study. We've done baptisms at the jail, and I've personally visited four federal prisons where people who got their lives changed in a local jail ministry got sentenced to Years and years and years behind bars. And I'm their pastor, and their pictures appear in the church directory, prison garb and all. Lives got changed because one woman saw a need and answered what she believed to be God's call and claim on her life. Jail ministry is not easy. Caring for folks on the margins of society is not easy. And being a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ is never easy. And Jesus knew that, and that's why he said what he did. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You tithe, mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without Neglecting the others. In a conversation with Tim Moore, who I think has shared this pulpit the last couple of weeks, he, he reminisced about being enchanted with uh, some prospective ministers' 16-year-old daughters when he was 16. He went into a little bit more detail about that than he did with you all, I think, uh, with me, but I'll, you can take that up with him. Well, when I was 16, I was interested in girls too, but for my 16th birthday, I had something else on my mind. Uh, tradition at our house was that mother would fix your favorite meal, and she did, and dad said to me, he said, uh, son, your mother and I have something we want to give you. And I was certain it was the keys to a car. <laughs> I mean, I was 16. It was my birthright. Y'all just need to know something. I didn't have a car until I graduated from college. Um, my dad didn't believe in that kind of thing. Of course, all of his grandchildren had one at 16, but his, <laughs> his son didn't. 
He reaches into his pocket and pulls out an envelope and hands it to me. I think, an envelope? Ah, it must be a title to the car with the key <laughs> stuck in it. And as he handed it to me, he said rather cryptically, you know, Mike, I'm not sure you're going to fully appreciate this gift, but there will come a day when you will. And I opened the envelope, looking for the key, the title, and it, it, it was a life insurance policy on my life. sold to him by Bill Campbell. <laughs> I'd always admired Mr. Campbell, but crushed does not begin to capture what I was feeling in that moment. And then that gave me this. And I've carried it for more than 50 years, and you see it's falling apart. And it's a prayer written by a man named Hartzell Wilson. And I want to read it to you. It says, this is the beginning of a new day. God has given me this day to use as I will. I can waste it or use it for good. But what I do today is important because I'm exchanging a day of my life it. When tomorrow comes, this day will be gone forever, leaving in its place something I have traded for it. I want it to be gain and not loss, good and not evil, success and not failure, in order that I shall not regret the price that I have paid for it. For years, I read that every day became a part of my life. And along with this church and some other forces at work in my life, that prayer was a big part of my decision to leave the family business and to go to seminary. I wanted every day to count for Christ. It, it doesn't mean that everybody ought to go to seminary. But I think it does mean we need to pay important, uh, pay attention to the really important stuff in life. You know, pew cushions are important, but they're never as important as someone who's sick and dying. Tithing is vitally important, but it will never be as important as justice and mercy. And putting bad people in jail is important. But it will never be as important as loving them and investing in them when they get out. And we don't have to be Bible scholars to understand that truth, do we? So how shall we live our days as the presence of Christ in the city of Huntington? How do you do that in order that you won't regret the price that you've paid for those days? Jesus tells us it is by tending to the weightier matters, to things like seeking justice for the oppressed and granting mercy 
to those who are in need and living our faith so that others might see Christ in us. May it be so for each and all of us. In Christ's name, amen.